Aretha Franklin uh, sings the national anthem, <laughs> written by Johnny Mercer and Hoagy Carmichael. That's some top-notch talent. Mm-hmm. Happy Black History Month. The uh, smartest man in the world, Proofcast, takes to the ether this time from the salubrious confines of the Porpoise of Fruititude, located somewhere here in Lower California. Me amo Gregorio Asus Ordines. Mi esposa es Jennifer. Hello. Hi. Here. You, you know, we don't want anyone saying you're not on the mic. All right. You know how that works. Um... Yeah, I've been uh, out in, on the road with the Who's Live guys. We was in, um, um, uh, uh, so where were we? Spokane, Boise, and Reno, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, taking a series of small planes over a series of giant mountains, and uh, we had a great old time. You weren't herding cattle? No, we were. We, uh, there was a little rope and a little ride. Well, I mean, before that, we were in Oklahoma and uh, a place called Elk City. I didn't even know if I talked about it on the last show, but Elk, Wow. By the way, Aretha made a bunch of jazz albums mm-hmm. before she made a bunch of rhythm and blues albums. The, that was from 1963. Yeah, the early 60s are her jazz period, so if you want to go back, that's what she was signed as originally. And then, of course, once she started to write her own songs and went into a different bag, by 67, it's Respect, mm-hmm. and um, which she purloined from Otis Redding, uh, changed the chorus, and put in the Sakatumi Sakatumi part, <laughs> and put in the RSPECT part, that's hers. Yeah, he wasn't that happy about it. I believe the quote from Otis Redding was, that little girl done stole that song from me. <laughs> um, because he had a hit with it, but her hit was... Yeah, no, no one remembers I his. I think the anthem of a generation, yeah. It's the woman's empowerment song of all time. Yeah. Um, in any case, uh, we, yeah, we uh, we were up there, and um, uh, Spokane is not quite as scary as it was. Um, marijuana is a lot cheaper than it is in California, I'm here to tell you. And uh, then... Um, uh, we were in Boise, not Boise, by the way. Locals call it Boise. Merry Christmas. Hi, Merry Christmas, Aretha. Um, <laughs> and uh, Boise is an interesting place. Uh, there's a gigantic Basque community up there. And we stayed at a really cute little boutique hotel. And my room was the um, uh, uh, Carl Sagan room or something. I don't know what was going on in my room. <laughs> I sent Jennifer a picture of it. Over my bed was a model of the universe. And um, with a tiny, weird, like, plastic massa astronaut from, like, when I was a kid, from Major Matt Mason, if the, anybody goes back that far. And it had a big, you know, the, the 19, uh, six, late 60s, early 70s space helmet, you know, the, the Scott Carpenter. And, uh, and then a giant poster of the 1939 San Francisco uh, pa- Panama Pacific, Pacific Exposition, which is a big thing in San Francisco, but I didn't know it was a big Why thing. Why in Idaho? I have no idea whatsoever. And then the decor uh, on the outside was uh, French, uh, uh, what do they call them? Not cafe chairs, park chairs. The the metal? Yeah, the metal ones. Mm-hmm, the park chairs, yeah. Like if you go to Paris or anywhere in, in France, actually. Like in uh, Lu- the Jardin de Luxembourg. Right, if you go to the Jardin de Luxembourg and you're walking about, um, there'll be a place to buy tea and coffee, whatnot, waters, ice creams. 
And um, there's always little green chairs. They have two little slats in the back and a very uncomfortable seat. Yeah, I was just going to say that you don't linger. No. Uh, and But they're everywhere. In England, it's always these weird, foldy me- uh, wooden chairs if you're in Kensington Park. That or, often you have to pay for. Well, you, you, you rent them. Right. You're spo- they don't, they're not just sitting there. In Paris, you don't rent a chair. You get to sit like a human being and have your bloody ice hey, cream. And there might actually be... Uh, beverages mm, available oh, um, co- with cold drinks with ice yes um, and hot drinks with whipped cream and stuff <laughs> like you know it's France and delicious ice cream that's not from a case that's actually scooped from uh, um, you know the, the, the package and whatnot um, right in England you're lucky if you get a Cornetto out of a box uh, which aren't bad. I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm nothing against Cornettos the first time I went to England I remember we, I was walking around um one of the big parks next to, uh, right behind now, Royal Horse Guards. And I sat in one of the chairs and someone came over to me and went, you have to rent these chairs. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, it's 25p or whatever for the next hour. And I'm like, I'll walk, right? And a guy walks around with a bag and a, and a meter. I'm not kidding. I don't know. Oh, golly, England. So anyway, they had those at this hotel in Idaho. They had little balconies that looked on nothing. It looked on the freeway. <laughs> and it was kind of a rainy night, but it was fun anyway. I was like an outdoor element everywhere I go. And uh, we, we went to Boise. And um, uh, uh, as you know, everything about me is my own personal comfort and food. So uh, I have to tell you the cuisine. We, get to, we eat dinner before the show together, all of us. Uh, that's Joel uh, Murray. You may know him from uh, Mad Men. Diamond Greg, Dave Foley, you know, from Kids in the Hall. Jeff Davis is obscure. I don't expect you to know him at all. And uh, me, and then Bob Durkatch, who was musical director of Second City Toronto for 25 years. And if I have said this before, if you'll forgive me, I played Second City Toronto uh, last uh, summer and did the JFL 42 Festival there. I had a grand old time. And uh, one of the funnest, uh, most pointed podcasts, it was during the Kavanaugh week, and we talked all about um, <clears throat> that matter. And um, in any case... Uh, all up and down the walls of Second City Toronto is Bob Durkatch's picture. You can look at him over the course of 30 years. His hair gets longer, then his hair gets shorter, then his sunglasses get cooler. Did he... You sure you don't want to stop? <laughs> uh, and Bob Durkatch has been with us for uh, 19 years now, and he's a superb improvising uh, keyboard player. He plays the synth, he plays the keyboard, the electric piano, the piano, the organ. He can also play a lot of other instruments too. If you give him any old instrument, he'll pick it up and play it, for goodness sakes. Um, the other night we got to do uh, in um, Reno, Nevada, where uh, Jeff usually sings a song to a woman in the show. And uh, this week we'll, we'll be in Asheville, um, uh, Charlottesville, and um, Knoxville. Asheville, Knoxville, and Charlottesville. Uh, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We'll be there with Chip and Dave Foley. Jeff is taping Who's Line. Jeff usually sings a song to a woman in the audience. This time it'll be Chip. And he said um, to her, uh, who's your favorite music? And she said, Tom Waits. And everybody in the group kind of knows that I do Tom Waits. So Jeff looked at me and I went, I'll do it. So I got up and sang a Tom Waits song. And I'm sure you're dying to know what it went like and you're dying to hear my Tom Waits impression. So here's a little bit of it right now because it's so fucking awesome. Lie, lie with your pants on fire. This is taking from, from a telephone wire. Gamblers reevaluate along the dotted line. You never recognize yourself on Heart Attack and Vine. So, uh, Dr. Lawyer, uh, a Man Thief, Philly Joe Remarkable, they're falling in disbelief. Uh, well, they say she's still a virgin, it's only 25 to 9. You never recognize yourself on Heart of the Hag and Vine. 
So he doesn't sing like that all the time anymore. And as Dave Foley pointed out to us, um, he didn't sing that way on his first couple of albums. He no. sang with a perfectly straight yeah. jazz voice and uh, got nowhere. So I think that was why he did it. Anyway, I had a good time. And we're, the, we're on the road this weekend, this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Friday, Asheville, North Carolina. Um, Saturday, I mean, uh, Thursday, Asheville, North Carolina. Friday, um, Knoxville, Tennessee's. And then um, Saturday, Charlottesville, Virginia. Yes, infamous Charlottesville, Virginia, where we'll be trying to bring some joy. Uh, we'll have with us uh, Charles Heston. You know him as a deacon from the hit television series, Nashville. Uh, Healy and I will be singing, and uh, Dave and Joel will be holding down everything else, and Bob will be wailing away on the keyboards. So come and join us for that. And we'll also be on the road all month, and we're going to be in the Bay Area the week after that with Dave, and then back on the road, uh, oh golly, Oregon, Washington with Ryan. So... We've really got a lot of kids in the group now. And when I say kids, I mean middle-aged men. And when I say middle-aged men, I mean men who are going to live to be 121 years old. <laughs> We're also taping Who's Line again uh, in February in a week's time. It starts. Uh, Ryan will be on all of them. So will Colin and Wayne and Aisha. Uh, Jeff's going to be on one. I know that. And I'm going to be on one. And then I assume uh, you'll get your, all your favorites, our Brad Sherwood and our Gary and our Johnny Mangum and our Heather Ann Campbell will all be involved uh, in our... Uh, 17,000. Uh, we've been on since uh, TV was powered by steam. <laughs> we came on uh, uh, right after World War II on the Dumont Network. Uh, we were on NBC Red for a while. Uh, and then um, <laughs> we, we actually only changed networks a couple times. We were on Channel 4 in England, not the BBC. That was 10 years. And then we were on ABC, uh, the American uh, Broadcasting Corporation here in America. Then we went to ABC Family for a couple of years. And then... Um, uh, the CW for the last, this will be our seventh year on the CW. We were briefly on BBC. BBC was showing them for mm -hmm. a while. And of course we were on Comedy Central and maybe even Ha Channel at the very beginning. And then some other weird thing that used to be a Christian channel that isn't anymore, but it's a family <laughs> channel. I think it's called Up. Every once in a while, uh, you'll see on Up TV. If anybody watches cable anymore, I might be talking to a whole group of people who are like, I don't know, I haven't owned a TV in 17 years. Um, they'll do a marathon of it and it'll, that'll be hilarious. Um, I think it's called Up. It used to be Straight Up Christian, which is what was hilarious, because we all had to do promos for it. We were doing a gig in San Diego last year, and they're like, do you guys mind doing uh, some promos for the... Because they bought all the Who's lines. And we're like, hell no, of course we'll do it. So we all put on our suits and our hair and our makeup, and we went into a room, and we had to go, hi, I'm Greg Proops. You're watching Up. And this is a Who's line marathon. You know, like, it's just fantastic. And um, yeah, and then we're like, we're, we're like, what's Up Channel? And I remember uh, my manager said to me, I, I don't think there's any money in this. And I was like... <laughs> You mean when a Christian channel goes up and buys a bunch of Who's Lines as the bulk of their programming? Not since, what was the channel in England? Dave. Oh, my God. There was a channel in England, still a channel in England. But when they first started ten, some 10 years ago, um, when England first got cable, they showed only Who's Line. and. Um, Do you remember when our neighborhood fought against... Yes. Having cable. Yes, 20 years ago in and, England. And it was dark and it was winter time. And I'd come home at three and it was pitch black and pouring rain. And I was like, I want cable. Yeah. yeah. I want more than four channels. At that point, it was four. They didn't even have channel five yet. And the channels were crappy. And there wasn't, if, if something was crappy on three of the channels, it wasn't like the other channel had something good. Well, the good thing was that late at night, they would show obscure foreign or old films. BBC Two was very good it about showing old great. movies. And yeah. great about documentaries. Right. But then nothing else. No. You would come home and there would be like prime time. We're going to learn about how badgers nest. Right. There'd be a garden. That, that, <laughs> that would be it. There'd be some horrible Noel Edmonds show in you know at eight o'clock with Mr. Blobby or whatever. BBC One was just 
Quel disaster. Although I do remember uh, being in Paris by myself, and the only thing on TV, there was a Belmondo film, uh, a crappy gangster later one. Yeah. Uh, there was a stand-up contest, and wow. then the other channel, because it was really late at night, was Caligula. You mean Malcolm McDowell, Peter yes. O'Toole, John yes. Gilgood, this is Tinto what was on, Ross, on offer in Paris. Produced by Bob Guccione, yes. who threw in... Were there hardcore scenes thrown into it or put in and then taken out of it? Uh, they were, yeah, they were in it. But they were in it. We they, met Adriano, who worked on right. it. Right, Adriano worked on... on uh, uh, he worked with and Pasolino. And he said it was just... Uh, pa- Pasolini. He, uh, Pasolino's he, the past tense of Pasolini. He was the production designer. On Caligula? I think so. Oh, my God. Which, I mean, what is that? Yeah, don't. Tino the mind, Bross. The mind reels. Tino Bross was a mediocre filmmaker to begin with, but he had his name taken off the movie, <laughs> as my understanding, <laughs> because he Bob Guccione thought that he could make this, like, high-class porn with all these extinguished British actors, and I do use the word extinguished. Uh, Peter O'Toole, Gilgood apparently turned to Peter O'Toole during the... If you don't know what we're talking about, it came out in like 79, maybe 78. Oh, it's, it, it was kind of famously uh, the Nightmare Project. Oh, no, it was Heaven's Gate everyone with, involved. with breasts. It was just uh, uh, like... It, 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 I think there actually was sex acts on screen. Yeah. I don't know which version got released in America. There, I think there was an R version and an X version. Yes. And the one they show on TV, if they ever show, which is never, is the R version. People have pustulant sores. There's it was, it was only spoken about in hushed tones. Right. And, and uh, yeah, it, it was... Uh, Outrageous and then faded quickly from well, view. Peter Peter Toole was not enjoying a career renaissance, nor was Malcolm McDowell at the time. They had both had bigger hits in the early seventies, and they'd kind of needed a gig or whatever the reason was that they took the movie. I, I always hesitate to impugn actors' careers because we've all done gigantic POSs that we've regretted. But <laughs> um, supposedly, Gilgur turned uh, O'Toole during the movie while two guys were you know, copulating with an apple or whatever in front of them and said, this is a grotty little movie, isn't it? And um, <laughs> um, Malcolm McDowell is over the top as Caligula, yeah. um, as only he can do. So I was at the Calgary airport five years ago, easily, and um, Malcolm McDowell was there for a Comic-Con. And uh, we met so many nice people over the years. The best thing about being a touring band is um, you get to go to all these weird places where all these weird things are happening. So last last year, Ron Perlman was on the plane with us. And Dave Foley, me, Jeff Davis, and Joel Murray all accosted Ron Perlman. <laughs> you may know him as Hellboy. You may know him as uh, 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 the sympathetic um, uh, man-beast from the island of Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer, uh, which was made by John Boor. Not oh John Borman, John, the other one. The other British John who made uh, Darling and all that. Um, and no, that wasn't John Schlesinger. Yes, yes, it is. Isn't it? John who Schlesinger? No. Well, okay, we have to look no, it up while we're no. going to start arguing here. But they, <laughs> we're not going to argue over it, but I, th- I can't remember who made it. Um, and you may remember him as... Um, uh, uh, he, there's a, 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 a film by the two Frenchmen uh, called The City of Lost Children, where he plays oh, the sympathetic... Wonderful. Yeah, he's kind of this overgrown... Um, sailor type, you know, who's rough and tough, but he befriends the young girl. And it's a beautiful fantasy film. I can't remember both of the French uh, director's names. One was Caro, and I think the other was Junet, was their last names. And they made Delicatessen, 
and um, uh, uh, the really weird alien movie with Sigourney Weaver. John Frankenheimer. Frankenheimer, thank you. It was the one who made... John Schlesinger would not be involved in that. Project. John Frankenheimer made uh, Seconds, and John Schlesinger made Midnight Cowboy. Am he I made Midnight it? Cowboy. He made A Sunday Bloody Darling. Sunday. Darling. He has some fantastic John an films. amazing filmmaker. John Frankenheimer is a little more torpid and uh, made some of the other types of films. But anyway, Frankenheimer made this movie, and Ron Perlman's superb in it. So every one of us in character, uh, we finally broke the ice with Ron Perlman. He was sitting ahead of us. And he has that distinctive face, right? It's just an absolutely remarkable uh, cinema face. He's got a giant occipital brow and a lantern jaw and a wonderful voice, right? Just this enormous presence, even sitting on a plane. And uh, by the way, we're getting back to Malcolm McDowell. I just wanted to skim <laughs> through this Ron Perlman part because it was great. And um, Dave said to him, uh, you uh, were in, I can't remember what picture it was, like some obscure picture. And Ron goes, oh, yeah, I was. And Jeff goes, oh, we have a friend that we both know named somebody. And Ron goes, oh, you know him too. And I said, did you get to meet Jean-Louis Trentignon when you were making City of Lost Children, right, who is in uh, a painting that Jennifer did, uh, but also famously was in A Man and a Woman and is a French actor of long standing. He plays a brain in the city of Lost Children who's in a jar and he has a migraine through the whole movie. So, forever, en français, he's going, Oh God, my head, could you please put some aspirin? And the scientist, the mad scientist, has to go over to his tank and drop aspirin in the tank because he's the controlling brain of the mad scientist empire that makes these weird. Um, Anthropomorphic bees and like drones, basically mm -hmm. like flies and whatnot. That his career is so long. He was in uh, that film that was the actress was nominated for uh, a, uh, an Oscar for best actress uh, for Amour. They Amour, were, which an was elderly couple. Right. And I was watching The Longest Day the other day, which is from '62, and he's in that as one of the French mm -hmm. soldiers. I mean, his career's astonishing. Epic. So I said to Ron Perlman, I says. Did you get to meet Jean-Louis Plantignon? And he goes, turns to me, clearly excited, and goes, no. He goes, we weren't on the, we, he, we didn't record on the same days and he wasn't on the set together, but I really, really wanted to meet him. And I thought, <laughs> oh my God, I've, I, I made me love you because that's a cinema lover. He was more excited that he was in a movie with Jean-Louis Plantignon. Isn't that nice? Well, it reminds me of that story that Mark Hamill told about, uh, being a fan of Peter Cushing oh. not, and not having any scenes with him. And so Peter Cushing took him to lunch because yes. he was such a softy. I assume a vegetarian lunch because it was Peter Cushing. Oh, yeah, who weighed five pounds and ate, what, two two teaspoons he, full he of pea some, soup? Yeah, he had some beet soup and, and some uh, and a cup of tea. hearty rustic bread. Right. I, I, that story's been going around this week. Mark's been telling it. And he ran a gif uh, today of him and Carrie Fisher and he goes, the reason I'm in street clothes in this picture is, and they're kicking their feet. They're sitting on an edge and they're kicking their feet. She's wearing the Leah costume. She's Princess Leah in it before she's General Leah. And he's kicking his feet and he's wearing um, bell bottoms and tennis shoes. <laughs> and he goes, the reason I'm, I'm in street clothes is I didn't shoot that day. And I said to Peter Cushing, I, 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 and Peter Cushing took me to lunch. And so he cute. said he let me fan You've on met him. both uh, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher. I have. Were they both about the same height? Yeah, they're uh, diminutive. Pinky. Carrie Fisher was exceedingly small, uh, as was Debbie Reynolds. Um, Mark is closer to human height, um, <laughs> but uh, not, he's not quite as hobbity as, as Carrie was. Mark Hamill's one of the nature's greatest gentleman. I really can't. Obviously, Carrie Fisher was astonishing, but she's swirling now. Mark, uh, I did this with the Lady Parts Justice 
um, Reproductive Rights League did a giant, in fact, it was one year ago, uh, uh, two days ago, Jennifer sent me the video, of um, they did a telethon supporting their cause, um, which, by the way, is more pertinent than ever. You may have noticed what's been hammering down in the news lately with uh, abortion rights all over the United States and uh, and this this Supreme Court thing that they're concocting that they keep threatening with us uh, behind closed doors that somehow Roberts and uh, uh, Gorsuch and... Um, I can't say his name. Kavanaugh yeah, yeah, are, are, are concocting some sort of terrible decision that they're going to roll out. In any case, um, Mark Hamill was there, along with a lot of groovy, groovy people. Um, Reggie Watts was there, and Sarah Silverman, and Andy Richter. Um, these are all pro-choice comedians. I just want to say their names to show that they're representing Jackie Cation. And um, some people manning the phone banks, some people doing work on the floor, whatnot. Mark Hamill did an art project on the floor. He's quite a good artist. And I get to interview him a bunch of times. And I asked him for a selfie and it didn't take. And I don't know what happened to it. I, see, I have pictures with me with everybody there. At Tim <laughs> he took pictures with every single human being there. And I believe, believe me, every single person in the building and every single person in the audience asked to take a picture with Mark Hamill. Because as you said to me the other day, he's Luke Skywalker. <laughs> and um, with the greatest um, grace and... Um, Politesse with the most geniality, cordiality, and bonami. He greeted and took pictures with every single person acting put out, not for one moment. So I assume Peter Cushing acted the same way because I assume Peter Cushing's manners were something well, he would. Famously, Josie got to meet him and oh, said, really? Yeah, said he was just, you know, fabulous. What about Chris Lee? Oh, God. I, you know, I, I would haunt this one park in London just hoping because he and his wife would, would uh, take a meander around the square. And uh, they're both so glamorous. And I thought, surely I'll run into him one day. Our friend Elaine did <laughs> did spy him getting out of a car and she ran over to, to help him thinking that, oh, this elderly man uh, can't quite make it out of the car. And she actually uh, recoiled yeah. when she saw who it was. And, of course, he looked at her. Get away from me. <laughs> exactly. I don't need help. I am I'm Solomon. 90. Yeah. yeah, I'm 90 and I'm, <laughs> I'm undead. Yeah. Well, I, I, the, the heavy metal albums that he made uh, toward the end, which... Oh. Um, Didn't he, did he make more than one? I believe he made a couple. I'm going to have to go And to he the... was a little too excited about it. Well... That was a little scary. What made him so great was that uh, he appeared to have a, a really tremendous sense of humor about himself, and yet at the same time no might have taken humor. himself more seriously than any human. This one's called Massacre of the Saxons. <laughs> From the album Charlemagne, the Omens of Death. This is Christopher Lee. Yes, Christopher Lee from The Lord of the Rings and from uh, Star Wars. And, and every Dracula movie. 500 horror films. Um, Charlemagne, The Omens of Death. Why is Charlemagne, The Omens of Death? <laughs> Although he could have played Charlemagne in the movie and he would have been a good Charlemagne because Charlemagne was supposed to be... An awful John Cale-like quality to his voice there. I was going to say, he, he doesn't have the growly, raspy. Yeah. Oh. Kind of more of a tenacious D thing going on there. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And how old was he when he oh, did this? Oh, 150. I, uh, I saw um, 
uh, Ronnie James Dio with uh, Richie Blackmore. I'm not proud. And uh, uh, Ronnie James had that kind of, you know, he, he, he kind of had one move, which was this sort of imploring the audience and the long hair and the, the snake hips. But his was more like, lonely rock and roll. It was that kind of like almost cartoony uh, heavy metal voice. But Chris Lee's, he doesn't even do, he does the, Charlemagne. Like, really? That's just, so I'm on the plane and um, the night before they gave us all hats at the show at Calgary. And it was me, Ryan and Chip and Jeff and um, me and uh, Jeff and uh, Chip and Ryan. And, um, in Calgary, the Stampede's a real important thing. It's a once-a-year giant rodeo that they have, and you have to take a cowboy oath, and it's all about, I swear to have fun and all this. It's not that serious. And they give you giant white hats. I have two of them. I have two giant white hats, which I look super Jewish when I wear. And so <laughs> we uh, there's a photo of all of us wearing our giant hats. And so it's traditional in Calgary for hospitality. Anybody that comes there, they give one of these hats to. So... Malcolm McDowell, we're in the airport in, in, uh, at Calgary, and I was buying a box of uh, maple cookies, which are like heroin. I don't know if you've ever had maple cookies from Canada. But oh, they're, they're so good. Yeah, we make a lot of tea, whatever. They're just, uh, honestly, you can't. I'll eat a box. And a kid came up. Malcolm McDowell was in the same gift shop as I. Replay, Relay, or whatever it's called. And the kid came over to him and went, excuse me, Mr. McDowell. And he was like, No. <laughs> And uh, shut the kid down pretty hard. And uh, I texted Jennifer and wrote, Malcolm McDowell's in the house. And you wrote back, you leave Caligula alone. <laughs> so uh, that's probably enough of the story. <laughs> he didn't do a heavy metal album. However, our friend Joel Murray uh, from the group Who's Live Anyway um, had the very good fortune to um, be in a picture with him called The Artist that was the best picture of the year oh, several yeah. years ago. With the uh, wonderful French actor Jean Valjean, um, and and Uggy, and Uggy, the, the dog <laughs> who was sensational, and Joel told me that they didn't have that much of a budget. It was really, really um, put together for not much money. You he, mean they had imagination? Well, because they shot. I think it's the first black and white picture to win Best Picture in uh, a thousand years, mm -hmm. and it's the first silent movie to win Best Picture since nineteen. 29 maybe wings might be the last or in old Arizona or something. I mean, it, that was the remarkable thing about it. It was black and white and silent and it won best picture. Cause it was so clever. Um, and John Valjean was wonderful in it and Malcolm McDowell's in it. And, uh, Joel got to be in it too. So I got to hear a little bit about it. Anyways, um, we'll be back with cinema corner next week. Cause speaking <laughs> of cinema corner uh, on the 13th of March, which is a Wednesday, um, Jennifer shows quite in the, in the heat of the night. In the Heat of the Night by Norman Jewison from 1967. Rod Starkey won the Best Actor. Sidney Poitier was nominated as well, but didn't win. And Quincy Jones did the score. It might have been one of the first scores done. Jennifer might correct me on this, but it might be one of the first scores done for a major Hollywood picture by an African-American composer. Well, definitely by Quincy. And it has a superb cast, including um, Leah... Why am I blanking on her last name? Grant. Lee Grant. Um, Rod Steiger, who is the least redneck sheriff person that you could ever imagine playing a redneck sheriff next to Jackie Gleason, who plays a redneck sheriff in every Smoking the Bandit movie, is superb as the redneck sheriff. And uh, 
it's a, a real meditation on race, and it's a, a, a pointed, pointed picture of a uh, 60s America. Norman Jewison made a load of good pictures, including um, a stylish thriller called The Thomas Crown Affair, um, the epic Jewish musical uh, Fiddler on the Roof with Tavia in the lead, and um, Paul Michael Glazer from Starsky and Hatch's Laser Wolf. And, oh yeah, I've got, I've got facts. Tradition. Topol? What did I say? Tevya. Topol is Tevya. Doesn't, doesn't he play Tevya? Topol plays Tevya. <laughs> I know, I mixed it up. And Paul Michael Glazer plays uh, Laser Wolf. And Norman Jewison's Canadian. And he said he spent his whole career, we watched an interview with him, with people saying, you're Jewish, right? And after he made Fiddler on the Roof, Jews would come up to him and go, oh my God, I'm so proud of you. And he'd go, why? And they'd go, because you, you know, for a Jew to make this movie, and he'd go, I'm not Jewish. And they go, your yeah, name's right. Jewison. <laughs> your name's Jewison. The answer is contained. In your name. Uh, in any case, he made it Heat of the Night. And it is uh, a superb motion picture. Um, I'm going to give you the first part without blowing any of the plot for you. Sidney Poitier is um, arrested for being black at a train station in this small town in the South. Simply arrested for being black. They bring him down to the station house, and um, Rod Steiger's the police captain, and Rod Steiger's like, what'd you pick him up for? And Warren Oates is like, yeah, he was hanging around, right? (laughs) In a suit and tie with money and and ID. He was being overeducated in... Yeah, and he's being... The wrong town. I am Sidney Potter, I'm waiting for a train to Philadelphia, and... uh, they bring him back to the station and Rod Steiger takes out his wallet and goes, what is this? And it turns out, guess what? He's a police detective from Philadelphia and he makes more money than all of them. And he calls his boss in Philadelphia and then is... Well, and also he's like Sherlock Holmes. Right. They have to depend on him. I was going to blow the whole movie. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, no, it's true. There's a terrible case that they're on and because they're have no resources and Warren Oates is a racist moron who's the deputy Rod Steiger is desperate to solve the crime and guess what the perfect person to solve the crime has been dropped into their midst because he was arrested by his redneck deputy and that's the plot of the movie so they ask Sidney Poitier will he join them in solving the crime and of course his job is detective in (laughs) Philadelphia so that's where the movie jumps off that's the 13th at 8 o'clock at the Egyptian Theater. They're having a Norman Jewison Festival all month at the Cinematheque. Um, and it was quite interesting that that was our first choice. It was some synchronicity, but you're good at that. And it happened to be, yeah. And also, uh, the, you know, we're, if we're going to go into race relations this month in America, wowzers, McTavish. Um, talk yeah. about the worst beginning to Black History Month. Um, and speaking of which, let's talk about some triumphant moments. Uh, Jesse Smollett, who you know from the television show Empire, endured a terrible beating by homophobic racists in um, Chicago. Um, um, came back and this two, three days ago, Saturday night, did a gig at the Troubadour uh, here in Los Angeles because he's quite a good singer as well. And he has a new rhythm and blues album coming out. And I just wanted to play you a little bit of his speech here. So I will always stand for love. I will never stand for anything other than that. Regardless of what anyone else says, I will only stand for love. And I hope that you all stand with me. So thank you. Um, He also said this sentence, which I thought was just tremendous. The hateful rhetoric that gets passed around, it has to stop. But guess what? It stops with the people that believe in love. 
Be as black, be as brown, be as gay as the fuck you want to be. Now is the time. Be blacker, be gayer. Do it right the fuck now. He was beaten for being black and he was beaten for being gay. And um, that's the terrible curse in America that we've talked about so many times on the show. The scourge that is white supremacy, the backbone and Lincoln logs that built America. America's built on slavery. America's built on the legacy of white supremacy. Every single president has been a white supremacist, except maybe Barack Obama, maybe Bill Clinton, and possibly for spurts, LBJ's agenda. I don't know that he personally wasn't. Um, He's close as you can be to someone who wasn't a white supremacist. FDR, white supremacist in a suit, quite intelligent. Um, Woodrow Wilson, openly white supremacist. I don't want to go through every president because it's boring. Um, If you don't believe me and you want to argue with me and you want to think, why are you always so denigrating of white people? White people do get quite a lot of credit. You may have noticed we've had quite a lot of white presidents, quite a lot of Supreme Court justices, quite a lot of white male Mm -hmm. Nobel Prize winners, quite a lot of white men heading corporations and running um, nations um, all over. Um, I think white people have had a chance. One thing that that just sickens me is that when I went to uh, Jefferson's house as a kid, uh, there was no... Uh, mentioned there was no sense that Sally Hemings had lived there and recently they have admitted or pretend to discover that the visitors restroom in Monticello was her bedroom yeah her quarters were there yeah. So, so they, my understanding is they've restored it yes. and they've added her to the narrative there, yes. including an entire explanation of their extraordinarily complex relationship. Also, I believe the, the parking lot, uh, now that's in, included in the story as the, the, I think the current parking lot is where the slave quarters were. Which had been taken down to make his memory seem more vaunted. Uh-huh. He had several children with her. R. Jefferson, the one who wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He was a slave owner who raped her. She was underage when he bought her or obtained her. He should come from another slave owner, as I recall. Um, He had children with her. From his wife's family. He also educated her uh, siblings. Her brother was a a famous chef. Uh, and he was freed. But he never offered him. Sally her manumission. He, but also he was always in debt. And uh, he inherited a lot of slaves and mm-hmm. uh, hung on to them. Yes, he did. For his own financial just, just so... reasons. Um, also, if you want to talk about... So it's, it's important to recognize um, all these people in American history. That's all. It's really wildly important to recognize the relationship. When I said extraordinary complex... Well, everybody's I would, story. Right. I wasn't trying to excuse uh, Jefferson or anything like that. Slavery is not that complex a, a thing to understand. It's the absolute abrogation, subjugation of one race by another by means of force and violence. That's what that is. For profit. It's, it's real easy to understand. It's as old as humanity. There is really very few countries ever that were successful that didn't have it. We, but we have to uh, we have to really try and find the stories of the enslaved people who weren't allowed 
their agency. I agree. Uh, we're going to get to that because I have uh, that entire list of New York Times uh, obituaries here um, because the New York Times finally tripped over a mossy rock and decided that after ignoring black people for the, um, uh, the Grey Lady, the August paper, the paper of record for the United States for so long, that they went ahead and printed them all this year. They rewrote them, wrote them some in, some, in many cases. Um, yes, the enslaved people don't get to tell their story because the enslaved people were tangential to white people's experience. So we hear quite a lot about, um, which is why Lin-Manuel Miranda is such a, a, a wonderful playwright and such a marvelous Marvelous confabulation and concoction and re-telling um, of that whole thing. Hamilton's from the Caribbean, doing a multiracial, polyracial, polysexual cast of Founding Fathers. It's just imperative in the United States. We needed it. And obviously, everyone loves it. Everyone needed it. We need to get to the truth. We just lie and lie about everything. America's like your family. You know, their dad's not telling the truth. Mom's scared, too. Right. Someone's in a corner yelling. Right. Your sister's out in the car, you know, listening to the radio. Your brother split and went to the bar with his friends. Like, (laughs) we're that country. It's just... And everybody... um, It's a long, difficult, horrible, shaky fucking process. Jesse Mollett had no reason to be beaten and accosted by white redneck dudes who don't like gay people and black people, other than their own fear and prejudice that drives them. And... He's, his courage and his um, absolute unbelievable bravery in the face of all of this. And to come back and do a gig right after. Yeah, that's wild. He's just, it's just fantastic. Uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, well, we're going to skip that and we'll go right here. Uh, James Ingram. Uh, well, let's go to this one first and then we'll uh, talk about James Ingram. We won't go to the obituaries quite so soon. Stacey Abrams, um, is. Uh, by the time this goes out, it might be past Tuesday. In any case, um, the State of the Union is supposed to be given tomorrow. Um, I'm, we're not going to watch it. We weren't going to watch it. I speak for Jennifer in this regard um, because I asked her today and that's how I know. And <laughs> secondly... Um, You know what he's going to say. I I haven't seen the State of the Union, nor have I seen the notes for it or anything like that. Here's my impression of what's going to happen to the State of the Union. Uh, Terrible, terrible things and many good things and the economy and the better and the people get thrown in a car and they get tape on their mouth and and, and Democrats. Right. And then racist hate speech. Yeah. It's the same lies spewed over and over again that um, Face the Nation let him blather after the Super Bowl yesterday in a terrible moment. The good news is the Democratic Party... Um, is getting wise and uh, went ahead and had what we call a landslide in the last election where uh, the voting turnout was ridiculous. The amount of women elected to Congress was finally we're up to 25%. That's a landslide in American politics. But the next next election might bring it up to 30 or 40% and the election after that up to parity. And when we reach, you know, equality in the House, equality on the Supreme Court, equality in the presidential office, then we can start talking about equality. Up until then, I think everyone has to understand. So, Stacey Abrams is invited to give the um, uh, op- the response, is what they call it. Stacey Abrams, as you recall, was um, denied office in Georgia. Oh, and may I add, the, there's a second response, and it's... Uh by our the California Attorney General Xavier Becerra, whose parents were working class immigrants from Jalisco, Mexico, which is really beautiful, and he's going to be at his high school surrounded by students. Did I lose you? Did you mention it's in Spanish? 
Yeah, he's giving his response in Spanish, which is just fantastic. And California now is already uh, a minority majority, which is beautiful. It's, um, I can't think of anything more important. There's so much crappy both siderism in um, the mainstream media. Oh, yes, but the Democrats did this, and that's equal to what the Republicans did, and all that. And not to beat a dead horse, but it's not at all. Um, the Republicans are the party of racism, putting babies in cages, having presidents lie, never disclose their tax forms, and being under indictment 30 some odd times and being involved in the largest traitorous scandal in the history of American electoral politics. And the Democrats aren't involved in any of those things. Are Democrats completely clean and wonderful people every minute of the day? No. I think we found out with Ralph Northam over the weekend that Democrats can be insane, redneck, racist, asshole, dickhead, privileged white guys who go to medical school as well, who won't own up to the terrible things they did in their past and simply do the three things that need to be done when you're a stand-up person, which is to say you're sorry um, to apologize to the people that you hurt, and then to make good on it by doing something to make it right. Those would be the thing. Atonement, I believe it's called. Um, in any case, uh, we're very excited. Stacey Abrams will be the first African-American woman to give a formal response. Um, she was beaten. Uh, the, the, the way ABC News has put it here is she lost a tight race for governor. Um, she didn't lose a tight race for governor. The, the race was stolen from her mm-hmm. um, in a very terrible... Uh, Famously long lines... People stricken from the register. And the fellow who ran against her um, was also in charge of counting the votes. So it was really... Ugh. That's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Eliana Presley, who uh, is uh, the first woman of color, uh, African-American woman to be a congressperson from um, Massachusetts. Uh, let's see here. Giving the rebuttal will be a notch in a long resume of groundbreaking roles from Abrams, who was the first African-American woman to be nominated for governor by a major political party. First African-American woman to be nominated for governor by a major political party. And she was also the first woman to the Georgia State House. Um, she met her friend, the aforementioned history maker, Presley, who received the award the following year. And this is what uh, Ms. Presley said about Ms. Abrams. I don't think she set out to make it. I don't think she ever set out to be the first anything. I think she's been enthusiastically received because the electorate is clamoring for truth tellers and justice seekers and grassroots foot soldiers and visionary architects. And those are all of the things that Stacy embodies. Her race, like mine, did expand the electorate, so it's easy to make that just about votes, but really it was about engaging voices. So I say to you, my darling Crip Kittens, the most important thing we can do is engage voices. And intersectionality is the whole enchilada. Men have to listen to women. White people have to listen to people of color. Straight, cis people, binary people have to listen to people who are non-binary. That's the whole, whole Megillah. Well, yeah, be aware of other people's points of view and what they're going through. It's the only way forward, I think, and um, toppling the patriarchy, of course. Uh, But uh, I think listening to people, and as she put it out there, I'm so sick of hearing identity politics. I'm so sick of hearing uh, why shouldn't... Of course you should identify with the group you're with. Engaging voices... 
And then this is what Ms. Presley said, Congressperson Presley. New people are feeling heard and seen for the first time ever. And that's what happened in this election. And that's why Lindsey Graham and the GOP and Orange 45 are having the kind of shit fit they're having now. Well, and, and it's, it's so, uh, they're so, uh, such small people with, with a, a hellish worldview because how enriching and uh, deep is your world when you include everybody and every voice? Um, much more. And uh, it makes it funner and it makes the world less scary. And uh, let's see here. They wrote, um, exit polls showed black women voted for Democrat. Oh, when the Democrats took the back the house in the midterms, by the way, this is six or seven paragraph. Polls showed black women voted for Democrats at higher rates than any other group. They are the backbone of mm-hmm. the Democratic Party. To be a Democrat is to support what black women support. And black women were exposed, as we've often discussed on the show, to the same poisonous um, uh, weaponizing that Facebook, that Cambridge Analytica, that uh, Twitter, that Google, that the mainstream media, that the Russian bots that was foisted on us. And black women understood it, read it, withstood it, digested it, and rejected it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our white brothers and sisters didn't do the same. Also, uh, they show up in numbers. In South, uh, to a traditionally red southern states, Alabama, 98% of black women brought Democrat Doug Jones over the victory line mm-hmm. in 2017. That means Roy Moore, who you know hung out at malls, was actually told was banned by, from malls. Uh, yes, exactly. Banned from malls, went to courthouses, was hassling teenage girls, is a mojo with him that everybody in Alabama knows because Alabama's a small place. And everybody knew that about him. And it was black women who, the, as they say here, brought him over the victory line, Doug Jones. But also, it's it's uh, evincing a practical response to a problem, not just saying, "Oh well, everything's messed up. I'm just going to sit at home. I, every party has problems. I'm not going to vote." You have to think pragmatically in order to move forward. But Jennifer, why can't there be a third party that represents me and my needs uh, personally? I'm a white guy, and I like to do stuff like white guys like to do. Why can't I get representation? Right. When will I be heard from? Why aren't there unicorns flying through know. the air? Why? Um, Andrew Gillum came close to victory, and Stacey Abrams did. And uh, Abrams and Gilliam, whose races took on a bigger cause of voter suppression, allegations of which led to lawsuits and the creation of Abrams Group Fair Fight Georgia, which focuses on improving the state's election system. Tom Perez. Let me be clear. We won in Alabama and Virginia because black women led us to victory. Black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party, and we can't take that for granted, period. That's why losses, such in the case of Gilliam and Abrams, have Democrats excited. They fell short, but they did come close. They expanded the electorate. Um, anyway, the fact that Stacey Abrams will be delivering the State of the Union is an early and encouraging indicator to me. We're taking stock of those lessons learned, said, learned, said Ayanna Presley. Also, well, I think she, she, she's going to be a presence in the Democratic Party. She's a, a powerhouse and it's it's fantastic that after having this election stolen from her that she just uh came back with a plan she started fair fight georgia she's going to speak uh in response to the terrible lies that we're about to hear um she really is the right wise governor of georgia but Mm -hmm. she may end up being a senator from georgia so she also owned a personal debt of her own and writes 
romance novels. Um, uh, Selena Montgomery, is it? Uh, yes, but personal debt. Didn't she have her, student debt? It was her, just a school loan. School de- uh, she had a school they loan. Were, they were trying to smear her about what turned out to be a school loan, which anybody now has who tries to go to college in America. Well, I brought it up for that very reason. There's not one of us who hasn't been in debt. I floated a student loan that I didn't pay off for ages. <laughs> my credit's been wrecked before in my life, and I had to pay a, a terrible agency to pay it off and whatnot. Um, I think that's the story of America. You may remember that Orange 45's never had a successful business and declared bankruptcy a thousand times as a way to absolve himself from ever paying anyone. Yeah, it might be a little bit more painful to owe the Russian government. And the Deutsche Bank? Your dad. Whereas Stacey Abrams simply had what we all incur by trying to uh, matriculate through the any kind of higher education, which is a crippling uh, student loan. Uh, let's see here. Let's talk about James Ingram for just a second here. James Ingram, oh, it's just such a drag. He, was, he wasn't very old. Debbie Allen was a good buddy and a musical colleague. He won the Grammy. Um, he worked with Patty Austin, Linda Ronstadt, Michael McDonald. He played keyboards, guitar, and drums. He was in Ray Charles Band in the 70s. He had he, a beautiful voice. He, he's just extraordinary. Uh, he made a record called Just Once, and it got to Quincy Jones. And Quincy Jones called him to make a, a record of it. And he thought someone was playing a joke on him. And his wife said, it's Quincy Jones. And he said to his wife, girl, stop playing. <laughs> um, he came to me, and he said, I can't sing. I'm a piano player. And I said, Quincy Jones said to James Ingram, yes, you can. <laughs> I love his voice. Um, James Ingram's did a bunch of songs on the 81 album, The Dude, called Ju- including Just Once in 100 Ways. Um, he did Baby Come to Me, which is uh, uh, smashing. And if you watch the video of Baby Come to Me, first Patty Austin's in this like sort of alley thing. And then because it's the 80s, James Ingram comes out in a coat with a big shoulders out of like a fog machine. It's just <laughs> sensational. Um, it became number one on the Billboard Hot chart uh, for two weeks in 82. Nine million copies. The singer's duet written by Michelle Legrand. Wow. How do you keep the music playing? With lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Michelle Bergman. Michelle Legrand couldn't stop. Michelle Legrand wanted James he, Ingram had. He also did the soundtrack to the Jean Louis Trintignant movie that you were talking well, about. A Man and a Woman, which yeah. is da na 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 na. Somewhere out there with Ron Stout for American Tale. You may remember that one. Mm-hmm. Somewhere, but the one I'm going to play is the one that I really love, and I'm sorry I have to do it. It's because I dig it so much. Um, James Ingram was an indelible part of the American music scene, was a wonderful, wonderful singer who had hits in rhythm and blues, pop, and is the soundtrack to a lot of people's lives. I think he's the epitome of that uptown soul that's just so marvelous. And it's spiritual, it's romantic, and there's really no replacing James Ingram. McDonald warning.
Told Quincy Jones he couldn't sing, man. Wow. What a right well, guy. Surprise. Yeah, he could sing. He taught himself, by the way, moved to LA in 73. He played with Donna Summer Grover Washington, the Pointer Sisters. He made a gospel album called Good Life. He w- made record with Kanye West and T Pain. He had six kids and, and his wife, Deborah Robertson. Um, he also worked on the Color Purple soundtrack and We Are the World because. He was awesome. James Ingram is everything and more, and uh, we'll miss him. Let's see. Uh, what about here? Oh, let's do this one. Can I? Oh yeah. Just you, mention again. Please, please do. We keep talking about supporting local papers, supporting journalists. I just read today that um, the Miami Herald did an article about. The fact that the people that suffered through Hurricane Michael uh, on the northwestern part of Florida, yes, that they weren't receiving any funds to oh rebuild, God. and uh, so they ran an article about it. And days later, uh, the United Way received a lot of donations. So it's really important to support your local papers. The journalists that do investigative work, it's vital. Did you see Gannett refused to lay a bunch of people off today? Oh, really? After McClatchy. But they, but they already had. Well, but McClatchy was really rocking the house by laying everyone oh. off. It's, it's a terrible state of affairs, you guys. Jennifer wasn't exaggerating last week. Keeping local press alive is imperative. Um, local press exposes local corruption. Local press exposes local stories. All news, all politics, and everything that happens in your life is what's happening in your neighborhood. I know well, that... Like for instance, the LA Times, uh, a journalist there ran an entire series about that uh, San, Santa Susana site uh, was a nuclear testing site in LA. So during this last fire, those that area was part of the burn area. That went into the air and scattered. Yuck. Yeah. But, I mean, no one is... Who knew that? How Nobody. would you begin to know about that unless your local paper was telling you about it? Well, television doesn't have time to cover everything, and there isn't the format for it. Yeah. Print and the written word. Um, someone that I remember said to me years ago, or I remember reading an article about a newspaper. I know that you're not going to read a newspaper now the way you're going to when I did, when I grew up reading newspapers. It's going to be on your phone, so you're going to have it at, at hand, and then there'll be that reading edition that you can press that icon that I always press. The thing about newspapers was, and is, 
you can keep them, you can store them, you can fold them, and you can read them later. And they're convenient to carry around with you. Well, you just got the Jackie Robinson edition of the New York Times. At your urging. Jennifer said to me, uh, it was uh, the hundred, it was Jackie's hundred and, he was my mother's age. He was a hundred and, I think he was born like two years before her. Uh, it was his hundred and third birthday or whatever. And, uh, as you know, I, I love Jackie Robinson more than anything. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his um, particular brand of heroism, but also um, the connection to Negro League ball, the through line of uh, firsts, the groundbreaking civil rights activist that he was in the area of sport. And later when he left and became a business person, and then he was a Republican and then changed from being a Republican back to being a Democrat when he realized that the Republican Party was uh, not what he wanted it to be. Having said all those things, professional baseball was never something he was enamored of. He didn't manage in it. When he was traded, he refused the trade and he was traded to my team, the Giants, and he refused to go across town to them. He never came back and talked about how great baseball was. In his book, he talked about the first time he was in the World Series, which was his rookie year. And by the way, he was rookie of the year. Two years after he was rookie of the year, he was the most valuable player of the year. Four years after that, they won the World Series. Five years after that, in 1955, they won the World Championship. Brooklyn has one World Championship of, of that era, and it was Jackie's team that won it. He was the most headstrong, outspoken, intelligent, and uh, possessed of every leadership quality that an officer, a gentleman, and um, an intellectual uh, person like he was would have. The reason why we were so lucky in baseball to have someone of his caliber is um, random, but also you couldn't make a living playing football then, I think. And he wasn't, uh, his sports were track, basketball, football, and baseball. His worst sport was baseball. So it was the anniversary, and the New York Times did a fold-out section with photographs. And Jennifer goes, be sure to pick up a Times. I was on the road, going to Reno or whatnot, Spokane. And she don't lie. And I did. I bought one at the airport. And I've kept it, and I've been looking at it. And I showed Jennifer the gatefold, as we call it in the <laughs> old days. The gatefold is um, a giant full-page picture that has the uh, spine running through the middle of it. Because papers have to open. And the first one is him stealing home against the Phillies. And then the inside one is a giant crowd shot of the enormous stadium. When Yogi Berra passed away several years ago, and Yogi Berra was someone that I'm ashamed that I didn't put in my book, the smartest book in the world. I say Johnny Bench is the greatest catcher, and I still stand by that. Yogi Berra might be a greater catcher than Yogi than Johnny Bench. I'm ashamed of it. I admitted it on Jay Moore's show years ago. I was in Jay Moore's garage and we started talking about baseball and Jay Moore's an expert on baseball. And I went, Yogi just passed and I didn't put him in my book. And obviously Yogi said so many great things like it's so popular. No one goes there anymore. And of course the phone <laughs> rang and he got up and the guy went, did I wake you up? And he went, no, I had to get up to answer the phone, which I used the other day. Um, it ain't over till it's over. And it ain't over till the fat lady sings are, are both his. Um, Fabulous. Yeah, wittingly or unwittingly. He's from the same Italian neighborhood in St. Louis as Joe Gagiola. They literally grew up houses down from one another. An entirely Italian <laughs> neighborhood. Barra and Gagiola. His name's not Yogi. It's Larry Lawrence. He didn't get the name because of Yogi Bear. Yogi Bear's named it for him. After, yeah, yeah, after him. 
he his friends said he walked like a yogi. They'd seen some sort of movie with Sam Jaffe in it or something in the forties, thirties, <laughs> and and Lost Horizon, possibly quite possibly Lost Horizon, right? And after the movie, the way Yogi was shortish and not built along the lines of a ball player at all. We picture ball players being like Lou Gehrig, tall and awesome, or like Daryl Strawberry, or you know. Bryce Harper or Lawrence McCutcheon, just athletic with great shoulders and awesome legs. And Ted Williams, you know, that sweet, sweet, you know. And he was pudgy and not particularly attractive. Great hitter. And um, when he passed, his daughter, who has a Twitter feed, and by the way, his book's great. It's called, I think it's called Ten Seasons. I can't remember. Yogi Bear's book's great. I've read it. I've read Jackie's, all of Jackie's books. But, um, the clip they showed was Jackie Robinson stealing home on him in the 1955 World Series. And he takes off from third and he's way too close to the plate when the pitch starts. And the pitch comes in and Yogi clearly puts one on him. But he slid under it by ever so slight a margin and the umpire calls him safe immediately. <laughs> Barra throws his mask to the ground and gets in the umpire's face and becomes hysterical. And Robinson <laughs> stands up really classily and gingerly and like runs away from the play and shakes hands with another guy. It's a great piece of film. A, a fait accompli. Yeah. And Jackie's smiling when he gets up and is like, yeah. I did and it. Yogi's hysterical with anger. <laughs> and what he wrote, what she wrote was, um, on the, and when Yogi passed was, he was out. They've been <laughs> <laughs> harboring. <laughs> the family dinner table. Well, I'm not saying he was angry about it. They were friends. Like, they were friendly. Like, the Yankees went along. But it along. weighed heavily. Yeah. Well, he brought an element to white baseball that hadn't been seen in, since the 1880s when they let African Americans play, which was that heads up, I'm stealing home in the World Series. No one stole home in the World Series. Not since Ty Cobb, who was, you know, crazy. Um to see Negro League style ball, although I don't think you could really say Jackie was influenced by the Negro Leagues. He only played a year, and he didn't dig it very much, although he did play for the Monarchs. This was a long detour. Wait, but you're saying is, the white ball players weren't really trying? It is Black History Month. Huh. They were trying. They didn't push the limits of what you could do strategically in a game. They were timid because they weren't fans of the Rube Foster School, which informed, I think, so much of Negro League Baseball, which was hit and run, butt and run, cut and run, take the extra base, do the advantage, if you've got the players, if you have uh, Cool Papa Bell, if you have Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was so excellent. His first few games in the minors are even better than you could in that. If I told you what he really did, you wouldn't believe me. A book by Jonathan Eig um, called Opening Day goes into great detail about what he did in Montreal and then what he did with the Brooklyn Dodgers. But what he did when he first got to the white miners blew people's minds. He hit a bunch of home runs and stole a bunch of bases the first two days he was in organized AAA ball. He was 27 years old. Like, he was better than anyone. He, he was that guy. Yeah, and everyone went, oh. I, th I thought it was it was really uh, cute, the, the tale of him and Satchel Paige. Well, they did know each other. Page, of course, was disappointed that he wasn't the first person signed. Um, but then, of course, he cheered for Jackie quite hard. Which one are you talking about? 
Well, what, the story of the photo of them sitting down, mm. and uh, he says that he can't hit him, and Satchel says that he'd open his... That was Henry Aaron. Oh, God. From two weeks ago. Right. He said, I'd have hit you. He goes, really? I'd open up your collar. Yeah. The second button. I'd have dropped your second button open. (laughs) Meaning I'd have put it so close to your chest at 97 miles an hour with a twist on it. Uh I'd have given you long tom. Or maybe my b-ball because it'd be where I want to be. Jackie and him played on the Monarchs for a year together. And that was the story where Buck O'Neill tells, because I think Buck might have even been managing and playing first at that point. That um, they went to a gas station and they had two full buses full of people, athletes. And they said, can we use the back? Jackie started to go into the white dress restroom. And the guy who ran the place went, "Um, you can't go in there. The colleges don't get to use that. And Jackie came back out, took the gas pump out of the bus and put it back on the rack and went, let's go. And as Buck O'Neill recalls it, it was a lot of money worth of gas. Even in those days, it was $1,500 mm-hmm. worth of gas, which was a lot. You know, when gas was 15 cents a gallon. And he went, we'll go down the road. And the white guy went, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. You, you guys can use the bathroom, but just don't tell nobody. And he let oh, them use it. God. And Buck says that's what Jackie brought. They were used to playing it the other way because mm-hmm. they didn't want to get beat up. They didn't want to get in trouble. They didn't want the police chasing them down the road the whole goddamn way. They're barnstorming. They're barnstorming. They can't have white cops destroying their livelihood. And Jackie was from Pasadena and Jackie was an officer. When he was at Fort Hood in Texas, he was ordered by a bus driver that he got on a bus in the middle of the night. He was a lieutenant, by the way. He wanted to go to OCS, Officer Kennedy. Is it all right to tell all this? It's. I'm telling it. <laughs> um, he wanted to go to officer candidate school um, when he got drafted during World War II and he was of age and he served and um, he was told by the board that the, the, class, the classes were awfully crowded and um, he understood that to mean that they were crowded with white people mm-hmm. and that there was no room for um, what we would have said in 1943 or 44 a Negro um, from Pasadena to be in that class and so he appealed to Joe Lewis because he knew Joe Lewis. He had played uh, Jackie on the UCLA football team, which was a, a much celebrated football team during that. That had Woodward Strode. Really? You think it might be celebrated? Mr. Washington and Mr. Strode were on that team. Yeah. The wow. UCLA wow. team of the 40s was integrated. So part of the reason Branch Rickey was so excited about Jackie was when he was a national figure. People who followed college football knew who he was. Two, he'd played on integrated teams without incident. Mm-hmm. That was a real big thing in those days. They really thought there was going to be like, you know how uh, 45 said there was going to be riots if he lost or for, you know, whatever. Anytime he loses that people are going to riot in the streets and shoot you and whatnot. They thought that there would be riots if black people played with white people. So Jackie had proven that. At That's the, just an excuse. Uh, it's the most racist. It's why baseball, uh, it's why I'm ashamed to be a baseball fan. And at the same time, exhilarated because there's what of the things we've seen. Well, we we have to go forward and and make things better. I mean, we have to be aware of our history. Yeah. So uh, he called Joe Lewis, and Joe Lewis pulled some strings, and he got into OCS. And then uh, he was on a bus, and he got on a bus late at night one night at the camp, and uh, the bus driver said, uh, uh, you have to sit in the back. And he went, I'm a lieutenant, and you're not ordering me to the back. I'll sit where I like on this bus. And the guy went, no, you're getting in the back. And he went, I'm not getting in the back. Words were exchanged. 
perhaps profanities and heated words. Um, a court martial was held, and his um, commanding officer, Jackie's commanding officer, much to his everlasting credit, defended him, and he was not punished for it. And that was 12 years before Rosa Parks, whose birthday is today. Mm-hmm. Rosa Parks was not only the first, uh, not only the most salient member of that um, bus strike, and what was her quote? I wasn't just tired, I was tired of being pushed around. Yes. Well, she'd been a lifelong activist. That's the thing. And she's the first person to be interred in the Hall of Fame in America and get, uh, what is it? The, uh, I mean, Lion State. To, yeah. She's the first black woman to Lion yes. State. Yes. Rosa Parks. Yes. Um, she was a lifelong activist. She was an activist before she um, wouldn't move to the back of the bus in 1955. Oh, she was involved in lots of organizations. Oh, and after that, she was a lifelong activist. We like to reduce women to their Helen Keller moment where they, you know, did one thing or whatever. But Rosa Parks is too indomitable, I think, to even... Well, we don't want to focus on their amazing strength. I mean, she she was uh, not a frail... No. Woman, she she was making a stance. It wasn't just "I'm tired" or whatever the right. the story that we had to hear. She was absolutely aware of the ramifications and what she was doing, and she had people behind her, and uh, she was uh, absolutely committed to. There was an organization in place, and she knew that when she did this, she was probably going to get arrested, and there'd be press around it, and the entire enchilada. And as you and say, she was, there was ready. Yeah, no. Mike Martin Luther King. It was quite an organized, and there was a dozen women before her as well that also did this. Uh, I only brought up Jackie to say that he did it during the war, and it's the same exact protest. Right. He must have been amazingly strong. Dan, so uh, here we are. I did bear the New York Times print edition. Uh, the New York Times is quite well funded. You are okay not giving to them. But the Miami Herald, uh, the Sacramento Bee, um, Charleston Gazette, uh, the LA Mi- Times, what's the Mercury News, the Jackson, not Free, free Press, Free Press, uh-huh. the Jackson Free Press. I mean, where, wherever you are, the, no paper is going to be perfect. But there's there are journalists working uh, so diligently. Uh, to uncover and uh, get the the story about the Sacklers and the, and the OxyContin scandal, that is because of journalists who are who are digging up the real deal about Purdue uh, Pharmacy and how they tried to market it and uh, and also make money off of uh, addict recovery which is really scandalous that the same company was working both angles knowingly. Are we out of the Sacklers now? Well, I was just saying that this is, this is journalism. Uh, this which paper is that, by the way? Well, uh, several papers. Um, I know the New Yorker uh, magazine also ran an article about it. but um, they, they support so many things, and they are the most corrupt phenol. Of drug organization you could possibly think of it wanting to run the rehab end at the same time as selling the most addictive opiate of all time is more than odious it's just a it's almost a perfect evil crime like a 
Well, I think they, that they're actually shocked that they're being found out. Yes, isn't it? Purdue uh, Pharmaceutical is what they're called, mm-hmm. and they're the makers of OxyContin, and the family's called the Sacklers. Yeah, and I think they're based in Connecticut. And it's the paterfamilias who's the brains behind, uh, the, no, or, or rather the, is the dark uh, overlord of the, um, yeah, their brothers. Mind you, I just went to a museum in Arkansas that was um, funded by Alice Walton, the heir to the Walton fortune, one of them. So, rich people have sought since the ProPublica. ProPublica is really on it, on the OxyContin story. And also, uh, West Virginia has been uh, unfairly, uh, they were were just awash in prescriptions. Um, They were targeted. uh, I can't remember the the number per capita of. opioid prescriptions but it's it's crazy the strategic and the charleston gazette was on that and that's a local west charleston virginia gazette's quite good paper and stays on governor justice a lot um the sacklers have a lot to answer for um, for the american carnage as they call it and um but i just want to emphasize to please support local journalists be aware of them Look out for them. And the the best ones retweet each other. Yeah, they do. Well, it's important to follow uh, small papers because they, they provide so much information and so much um, activism goes on. Let's move on to uh, this one. Uh, Chinoye Chukwu is the first black woman to win Sundance Film Festival's Biggest Pride. Her film Clemency is a gripping death row drama starring Alfie Woodard. Alfie Woodard is a sensational actress who's um, crafty, as they say. <laughs> uh, filmmaker Chinoye Chukwu became the first black woman to win the Grand Jury Prize for Clemency. Um, she was already banner year at the festival with all four jury prizes going to women. The first black woman to win the Grand Jury Prize um, for her category, the Nigerian-American uh, filmmaker, wrote and directed the death row drama starring Alfre Woodard as a prison warden struggling with the emotional demands of her job. Um, in 2012, uh, director Ava DuVernay became the first black woman to win a directing award at the festival, Sundance, for the middle of nowhere. DuVernay acknowledged Chuck's historic win with a tweet, congrats, and the cast and crew of the film beautiful festival lineup with many gems brava um they're still looking for a distributor according to this in essence magazine but i assume they will get one um we're trying to focus uh, as usual on all of the positive news and everything that's groovy in the world because there's so many people who are working so hard and so many heroes every single day you hear a lot about the government and abrogated treaties and Ralph Northam and his innate racism and the idiocy of and venality, malfeasance and evil of so many people. But there are lots and lots of people who are working um, for the forces of good all the time. And uh, even in the government, uh, this week you'll find that uh, the, uh, let's see here, where is it? Democrats prepare for a week of blockbuster hearings, and that's going to happen this week, you guys. Uh, family separation policy along the border, releasing presidential tax returns, Matthew Whitaker, House Intel, uh, Michael Cohen. Uh, uh, Michael Cohen's going to be interviewed by the Intel Committee. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Steve Mnuchin is going to be interviewed by the Financial Service Committee. The House Oversight Committee launched an investigation into security clearance protocols, meaning uh, Jared Kushner, Mm -hmm. and much of that. That's all going to happen this week. New chairman have taken to impress upon the members, there's a fine line, this is CNN, between getting answers and political showboating. Oh, Jesus Christ, this writing. I've been in the oversight committee hearings for 20 years, and uh, this is from Mr. DeJet. And I have seen chairman come and go. We're not badgering witnesses. We're not going to be unreasonable. Speaker Pelosi warned Friday the Democrats would be strategic in how they employ everything. Uh, let's see here. This one I wanted to um, read because it's... Oh, no, that's a lovely story. That one about the woman in Chicago. Yes. Well, well that was... A, okay. All right. Hmm. Yep. Let's do that. Uh, during the um, polar vortex, there were a couple of awful tweets. Scott Walker, who was um, the former dictator of Wisconsin, and... Orange 45 is in charge of everything that's bad. Uh, both tweeted, I wish there was a little global warming because things were so cold. Well, of course, that misses the point entirely, doesn't it? And look science in the eye. And I didn't stay in a room in Boise with a model of the universe in it to come here and tell you that there isn't such a thing as scientific fact. And that climate change, global warming, and all those different terms mean different things. And that it's okay to be intelligent enough to know the subtle nuance the world doesn't mean it's getting warmer all the time. Um, climate change entails a great deal of things, including an ice age concomitant with um, terrible summertime weather and droughts and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And this can all happen at the same time, you guys, and it has since time immemorial. Here we go to the part that'll lift your heart and raise your spirits to the sky. CBS News wrote this lead, which is something that you might have written in 1938. Meet the woman... <laughs> who rented hotel rooms for homeless in Chicago during dangerous polar vortex. In my opinion, they buried the lead um, because her name is Candace Payne. By the way, Candace Payne's not a rich person. She described herself as, um, I think, uh, just a girl from Chicago. Um, that's where we're at now. Mark Zuckerberg uh, wrote an editorial this week about how everyone's supposed to back off because he's doing the right thing. Um, uh, Howard Schultz, who owns Starbucks, is angry that only 4% of the country supports his nonsensical, um, completely illiterate, um, tone-deaf billionaire campaign that refutes everything that everyone's talking about right now and and looks it in the eye and says, why can't billionaires still have their privilege? These are two billionaires. There isn't a story about either of them providing a bunch of money to people during the polar vortex, even though they're both hipsters and supposed to be aware of what's going on with climate change in the world. Candace Payne impulsively charged 20 hotel rooms on her credit card. And then I'm going to forgive CBS writing here before it snowballed (laughs) into a life-saving effort by a group of strangers. In other words, I can start I am but an acorn. I start small. But people will join you. If one person joins, 10 will join, and then 50, then 100. That's all we can urge you to do is try to be part of something bigger. We're always trying. Well, she stepped up, and it's just, it's shocking that it wasn't a, a city duty to go out and... Well, 
No, I mean I'm sure the mayor and people in a in a warm room. Well, you mean the idea that there's eighty thousand homeless people in the city of Chicago. That's by count. I don't know how many there really are. And Chicago is quite large, as I recall, six eight million. It's big, and letting people die in the city is a thing. Um, we've reached that point. A Chicago woman's act of kindness. Pain booked hotel rooms after realizing how life-threatening the sub-zero temperatures would be. For the Chicagoans without homes, she posted about it on social media and the donations and offers to help came flooding in. Maybe they didn't know how or where to start to help. And I was glad to be that vehicle. On Wednesday, temperatures plummeted to 22 degrees below zero. Jesus. Mm-hmm. H. Christ. A group of homeless people had to van in their tents after a propane tank exploded. They dug deep into their pockets, pain, and picked up tabs for 60 rooms on the south side. They worked together like a family, turning a hotel bathroom into a makeshift kitchen and collecting donations to help replace the items that were lost. And they built lasting friendships, even most of them adjusted. I saw out. a video of it, and they, they were feeding them. And they had a place to rest. They they could clean up. But also, it was so thoughtful of her to also provide uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right. For everybody there. Soap, socks. They did the whole thing. So, uh, a local man uh, named Ignacio Nava passed away at the very early age of 42 his nickname was nacho and he had a a club downtown la for uh latino gay and lesbian uh people and that's fantastic always uh his friend said he always was about let me help you let me know how to help you or let me be there and uh, not long before he passed away, he hosted an event celebrating this woman that I had read about years ago. And she's still with us, and her name's Jewel Tyus Williams. And she owned L.A.'s first African-American gay disco. Gloria Gaynor, Sylvester, Grace Jones, Patti LaBelle all performed there. Tina Turner, uh, she opened the Village Health Foundation. She co-founded a minority AIDS project. She was a board member of the AIDS Project of LA. She co-founded Rue's House, the first housing facility for women with AIDS and their children in the United States. Wow. And she's still here. She and her wife are both still here. Just fantastic. I mean, what you can do. I mean... It only requires a little wherewithal and a little gumption. And to join like-minded people. Jennifer and I have been so lucky. We've been able to go and join Liz Winstead and the Lady Parts Justice League. We've been able to go to the ACLU. We've been able to stomp. We've been able to meet different activists. Um, We urge you to do the same thing. Um, If you buy my album, uh, The Resistance, um, uh, the autographed copy, I don't know how many are left. Um, all of the money, which is $25, goes to R-A-I-C-E-S, racistexas.org, which is a group that helps immigrant people deal with coming into the country. Um, you've heard about the three ephemeral caravans that are coming to threaten us soon. Um, uh, this is a real life on the ground uh, activities. And uh, 
if you buy the album The Resistance um, and you can go to gregproops.com and whatnot or my Twitter feed at Greg Proops. Uh, this has been the smartest man in the world Proopcast. you have been the smartest crowd in the world may every page you tune be a satchel page may every uh, bell that rings for you be a cool pop bell and if you have to buy bonds make sure they're Barry Bonds this is Sylvester Sylvester 